Welcome to Carry the Fire, a podcast where we explore the big questions of life through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm your host, Dustin Kensrue, and my hope is that through these conversations with people of diverse and divergent backgrounds and beliefs, we can glimpse the world anew through each other's unique perspectives. I think that's that's a toxic environment when you're not allowed to question, you're not allowed to, you know, have robust discussions about your doctrines, about the because we all are part of culture, right? We all have there's there's a, a certain level of social influence and the way that we influence one another and I guess dictate each other's behavior, right? Um, like we all stop at a red light. You know, not to say that there's ever a place that's that there's a vacuum of values that hold a group together. But when a group is that authoritarian um, that you can't uh, question um, and you can't kind of break the mold, then that's that's a sign of toxicity. Hello, everybody. Today on the pod, we have Cindy Wong Brandt. Cindy is an author, podcaster and public speaker. She's written a book called Parenting Forward, How to Raise Children with Justice, Mercy, and Kindness, and has a podcast by the same name. A former conservative Christian missionary, Cindy underwent a faith shift and now speaks and writes about how that has impacted her life, and especially how it impacts the often overwhelming and bewildering task of raising children. In our conversation today, Cindy recounts some of the story of her own faith shift and gives her advice for others going through similar situations. And she shares tips for parenting in a way that does justice for your children and also helps them to learn how to do justice in the world around them. Let's listen. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So it's it's morning where you are, yeah? Yes. Okay. Eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> All right. Bright and early. So I warned you about this question and you were excited, which is fun. Uh, but growing up, uh, what would cause you to feel a deep sense of wonder? Um, I think I remember it's not, I don't really have a unique answer to this question. I think like so many other kids, I love magic. Oh, okay. No one said that yet. Yeah. Yeah, I love magic. And um, so I grew up in Taiwan and I didn't actually learn English until I was 10 years old. <clears throat> so before then, I read Chinese storybooks and um, there's lots of mythical tales of, you know, monkey kings and animals that fly and talk and do magic and fight battles. And um and I, I love those. So I feel like that was my sense of wonder. So not like, not like a magician as much as like the idea of, of magic out in the world. Yeah. I think it was just fantastical stories. Like mm -hmm. I really fell in love with, with the fantastical stories. Um, but I, there's also kind of a dark side to my sense of wonder in that I was the kind of kid who thought about death a whole lot. Mm. Um, and I mean, it's, it's kind of, I feel like it's the opposite size of a coin because like, I remember I just fear I was afraid of dying or I didn't know what it meant to die and I couldn't fathom eternity. And, um, but then a lot of the stories that I read would have like stories about eternal life potions. 
you mm. know, <laughs> like some character trying to seek some powerful emperor, um, trying to seek an eternal life potion. And so then I, I like those. I, I like the stories of how, you know, the adventures that people will go on to try to secure these potions. Yeah. So I feel like there was kind of a light and a dark side to those to, to that way of thinking and my existential angst as a little kid, which is why I always think children are so attuned to spiritual questions. Um, and because I knew I was, I was thinking about all these really transcendent issues um, from when I was really, as long as I can remember, three, four, five years old. So you didn't start going, to, you ended up going to a, a Christian school. I but did, yeah. Christian. But so before you went to that school, did you have an idea of what happened like when you, you died? Like, was that a point of like that you were pulled into that world? Because there was like, here's an answer. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was just asking my kids this last night. I asked them if they had ever been um, traumatized by images of Jesus on the cross because, I mean, crucifixion is a really gory um, form of execution, right? And I just wondered if they had been. And they said no because they kind of grew up in a Christian environment and they were used to that. But I just remember, um, so before I went to the Christian school, I went to an Anglican school, and that was when I was exposed to these crucifix images, and I was really quite traumatized by that. But even though I was traumatized by the images of Jesus on the cross, at the Anglican school, I was never evangelized to. They didn't try to proselytize to me. It was just like a tradition that was, you know, um, a ritual. Like they had chapel and we did these rituals, but nobody tried to convert me. Mm-hmm. But when I was transferred to an evangelical school, a school set up by missionaries, they actively tried to convert me with the gospel, um, quote unquote, which was that if I prayed the prayer, accepting Jesus into my heart, then I would go to heaven. And there was my answer that I have been seeking my short 12 years of life up till mm-hmm. then. Um, so I think I was a very easy target. <laughs> for proselytization of children, which was, was bad for me. Um, and which is why I'm so outspoken about not evangelizing to children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask you about that. Cause you had uh, a tweet a little while ago that mm-hmm. caused controversy where you were trying to, to make this argument saying, uh, I should have pulled that up, but you were saying don't proselytize to kids. And people ended up taking it so far as to say, like, you can't share your own religious traditions with your children or whatever. But it seemed like to me, your your point was more like you've got to leave room for children to actually be able to think about these things, to make up their own minds, to not be in such a pressured situation that it becomes uh, coercive, I guess. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of room for discussion on how we share our values with our kids. I would say even some of the most progressive people and liberal um, forms of faith, they still proselytize their children. Mm -hmm. I think it's something that we should always keep in mind, especially because the culture in general is very anti-child and we just have historically not thought about 
what um, what it means to solicit a child's consent in all of the things, right? So I feel like it's a challenge to everybody. But for that specific tweet, it's really very simple. Do not evangelize a child means don't threaten a child with eternal hell mm. um, and get them to convert. That's really all it is. Um, I think that's abusive. It's spiritually abusive and it's emotionally abusive because imagine striking terror into a young child's mind and heart for your own religious agenda. Like that's horrible. Um, and so I stand by the tweet. I, it's funny that tweet went viral, but I've been saying the same thing for many years. Mm. It goes like a level deeper for people, I think, because if you are truly believing that God is going to torture people forever, it's not setting you up to be able to hear what you're saying and be able to really process it because you're like, but no, like I, I don't want my kid to go to hell. And so that ends up trumping anything else, but that, and that's where I think the problem is, is I don't know, just, it challenges I, the very central, um, tenant of their faith yes because they teach that to the kids because they believe it themselves and exactly, they're yeah. not willing to challenge that um, and yeah and there's nothing i can do about that i i you know i don't try to evangelize people um but i am consider myself an advocate of children and i'm just gonna say it like it is if you teach a child that kind of teaching i think it's spiritually abusive yeah so. Uh, I, I mean, I, I feel like it's in the end, I feel like it's spiritually abusive to teach it to adults too, but that's, that's another I story. Agree. I just, but at least adults have, you know, a little more autonomy and life experience to, to decide whether to adopt that teaching. Yes. Right. I agree. Um, ch children are vulnerable, I think. Yeah. It's really hard to make inroads when people are doing things for what they feel like are good reasons, but aren't able to see the bad things that are actually shaking out in that. Because I think anyone you talk to who's saying this, they're doing it absolutely for what they think are good, valid, helpful reasons for people. Um, it's It's a very tough situation. That's something I think for me that was huge as I, um, probably a, a slower burning thing for me as I was in kind of pre deconstructing phases of certain parts of my faith was thinking about like, I'm supposed to believe this and, but I don't want to tell my kids this. And I don't, in the end, I realized I never really believed in that God would do that. Like it just was yeah. part of the package, you know, but I was like, as it came to this, I never had that feeling of like, yeah, I got to I got to get you to, you know, I'd go through the motions with adults and stuff. But at the end of the day, I was never convinced that that was actually the the reality. And when it came to my kids, I was like, yeah, I don't want them thinking that about God. Yeah, I think so many of the parents in my community, they they have the same story as you. They really becoming parents kickstarted their deconstruction because it forces you to really grapple with what you believe because yeah it's so easy to live your life not really questioning um the things that you're saying <laughs> right uh the, well the... and especially when they're part of a larger package right like that i didn't get into you know i wasn't or i wasn't still a part of uh the christian faith 
because I liked that doctrine. It was like, oh, gosh, all right, well, I think this fits in here somehow, I guess. Maybe I just don't understand it, and I'll you know leave that to God or whatever. But it's such a package deal with how you are in a you know a social group and everything is reinforcing everything else and uh, there's not a lot of room in those groups usually to be able to think about this stuff you know very quickly it sets people's alarm bells going off and i mean yeah it's very hard to maintain <laughs> any kind of relationship when people are that you know then these people are now worried about your eternal soul and you're going to go to hell forever and now you're convincing other people that th that you're right and they're going to go to hell and i mean it, it right yeah, i don't know it's a bad scene it's hard i think that's that's a toxic environment when you're not allowed to question you're not allowed to you know have robust discussions about your doctrines about the because we all are part of culture right we all have there's there's a, a certain level of social influence and the way that we influence one another and i guess dictate each other's behavior right um, like we all stop at a red light you know not to say that there's ever a place that's that there's a vacuum of values that hold a group together but when a group is that authoritarian um that you can't uh, question um and you can't kind of break the mold then that's that's a sign of toxicity and i feel like for parents we need to kind of help our kids recognize those red signs when they're a part of when they're starting to you know, become involved in a group like that to help them see that that's not okay and that they should always have the freedom to to leave a group if they want to. You know, I think I think for those of us who grew up in authoritarian groups, you know, having children is kind of a opportunity for like a fresh start, right? Like we can make sure that they don't get kind of entangled and trapped in those kinds of situations so that so that that's why our process of deconstruction and um, is so fraught um, because of what you said because it's one package deal it's one whole subculture that you're trying to extricate yourself from um, and that's just really hard and traumatic um, so if we can help our children not have to be involved in that in the first place yeah it'll be better for them Sorry, I keep talking about parenting stuff. I realize that your podcast is not a parenting podcast, but no, it's no, like no, a career hazard for me. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, I, I like talking to people about what their passion is, you know, so yeah. tied to these other things. Um, yeah, that's interesting that I I think when I heard your your story before, I didn't realize it was, you were 10 by the time that you went to that school and it still had such a huge impact for you at that time well it was my adolescence right so that's a very impressionable time of human development and formation um and also it was i was like full of zeal right and i think mm -hmm. all you know many teenagers are full of zeal for something or other um and for me it was that and so i kind of dove in really deep into that world and and it's not hard to be zealous when you're told that you have to be on fire for God and Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, it was kind of a perfect storm. What did your parents think about all of that? 
So I was, you know, my parents are Taiwanese and they sent me to a school for missionary kids. And, and a lot of times um, Taiwanese parents were doing that because they wanted, you know, a Western education for their kids. They wanted a better future for their kids. And, um, and so the religious teachings that came with the school, uh, you know, wasn't the main point. And for them, it was like, oh, well, they teach you to be good. Like, that's mm -hmm. good. And, it, and some of the values um, in evangelical Christianity also like coincides with traditional Chinese values. Like, mm -hmm. well, honestly, some of it is sexist, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, respect authority. Like that's also a value that's part of Chinese culture. Um, and so for them, they just felt like it was good, moral character education. And, um, and I went to Bible study every Saturday and they felt like, well, that's better than going out and doing drugs for a teenager. Um, so they were okay with it. Yeah. So I have a 13 year old, 10 year old and eight year old. And we're in the middle of this thing where they're wanting to go to a like youth group thing at a more conservative church. And I just like, ah, man, I, I know there's fun games and I know whatever, but I don't, I don't have good feelings about it. So we've not made decisions on that yet, but I'm, uh, it's interesting hearing your your take on it that that's the age you were when you started to have encounters. I feel like that. it's a very common story. I mean, there's a lot of people who didn't grow up in like a fundamentalist home, but that youth group culture is very alluring, especially yeah for teens who are looking for love and belonging and purpose. They know how to target <laughs> those needs um, that are in youth and. Um, but I think for parents who grew up with that culture, I think the thing to be aware of is that we also have our own spiritual baggage. Um, and sometimes we project that on the kids like, oh, man, like for me, especially like I felt like that was a very traumatizing time for me. Looking back at the time, I didn't think that. But looking back, I was like, that was bad for me. And so I project that if my kids were to go to Bible study, you know, at 12 years old, they are also going to be traumatized like me. And that may be true, but it's not necessarily true. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, and that's kind of what I'm trying to think through is especially having parents who've gone through that and deconstructed some of that, like being in dialogue with them as they're in that kind of environment. Like maybe that's totally different than, whereas, you know, everything in my life at a certain point was reinforcing everything else. And so exactly. Having an alternative voice is, will make such a huge difference. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. So you ended up becoming a missionary yourself and then had this kind of faith shift. Uh, you, you like that term better than deconstruction. Yeah. Um, Oh, I don't mind either way. Okay. <laughs> What, well, actually, I, I was curious, what do you like faith shift because it doesn't sound negative, whereas deconstruction ends up sounding negative a lot of times? Yeah, I feel like deconstruction, it, it doesn't sound creative, whereas I feel like the process of faith shifting is a very creative process because you are imagining new ways of doing things, imagining new stories. I don't feel like deconstruction conveys the creative part of that process very much, but I don't mind deconstruction. I don't mind negative. It is negative. We're, you know, burning, smashing the patriarchy. <laughs> you know, that's, 
that's very negative. And so I don't, I don't necessarily uh, mind deconstruction. I think that I think there's lots of terms floating around, and I think we, those of us who are going through it or have gone through it, just kind of, you know, wink and nod and know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, any kind of creation is is destruction in some way too. That's true. Like the reality is when you're deconstructing things, you are leaving certain things behind, but you, it's not like you're going down to nothing or nowhere. I had someone tweeting me the other day and they felt like they deconstructed to nothing. And I was trying to encourage them. I was like, you're, you're not nowhere. This isn't nothing. It's just a new place. It's totally disorienting. You know, that's normal. Um, But it's not nothing and it's not nowhere. It's just new. Uh, And you've got to, you've got to orient to it. And then there's all these possibilities now that you are not in the spot you were before. That's right. I love that idea that um, being creative means deconstructing something as well. I don't think I've thought of it from that opposite perspective before. Yeah. Talk to me more about that. I actually don't know where that idea is from, but yeah, just the idea that creation is destruction. Um, I'm sure a bunch of people have talked about it, but I feel like it's, that's really profound. I'll have to think about that some more. Like you're, if you're going to paint on a canvas, that canvas is no longer white, right? It's mm-hmm. you are destroying the whiteness or whatever of that canvas, but you're making something new. Yeah. And, and always when you have a voice, you're talking over somebody, right? I mean, that's mm. kind of negative, but it's also kind of true. <laughs> when you, yeah, when you speak, mm. no one else is speaking. That's right. Um, well, that's a good, and that's a good thing to remember. I think especially, I think that's been hard for a lot of, um, white folk to learn, um, that they've been speaking over people for a long time and maybe it's time to like, listen a little more and try to hear more, try to give voices and platforms to people who have not had the privilege to have that space to speak. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, kind of like the Oscars, it's like, you know, the hashtag Oscar so white is has been trending for many years, I feel like of the Oscars. And, and it's like the films the Academy puts out are really good. They're really good stories. Um, So but there is also that dynamic, like, well, when you tell a story, it means someone else isn't getting to tell theirs. (laughs) Yeah, well, that was interesting to watch. uh, South Korean movie win uh this year and yeah parasite angered mr trump which is uh yes (laughs) not uh, surprising not surprising hey everyone if you're already supporting the show through patreon thank you so very much If you aren't yet, I wanted to let you know that you can now become a patron and support the show for as little as $5 a month. Becoming a patron can provide you with a variety of perks, including access to additional content like song lyric breakdown episodes, Q&A episodes where you can submit questions for me to answer, additional conversation episodes that won't show up in the public feed, and access to our Discord board where we're building community and engaging in deeper conversations around the show. Here's a sneak peek at a clip of a lyric breakdown episode. So as a musician, you're out a lot. Um, the worst position is like being in the military, which uh, someone yeah, wrote, yeah, wrote yeah. in about too. That's uh, been really helpful for us. Like yeah. my husband's gone, you know, six to eight months in a row. That's really oftentimes, 
actually on the sea. Yeah. This is this is written for Navy families. <laughs> but the thing that actually made me think about the connection in general to the whaler was it was like uh so when we were writing Visu, which was right before the Alchemy Index, it was like into a lot of like that Visu originally started as this kind of oceanic themed record or whatever mm-hmm. and then it went a little broader, but <clears throat> we were all thinking in those terms and then doing the water record. This thing is very loud bubbles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> doing the water record, you know, it was like building off that too. But so I'd read like uh, Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. The whalers, they'd be, they were gone until they filled the ship with whale oil, which could be like three, four years. Crazy. So just whaling around the world until yeah. they're full. Yeah. <laughs> and then they finally come back. So that, that was just insane to think about mm. missing four straight years of your family. If you're digging this podcast and want to join me and others like you in our pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful, then joining us on Patreon is the best way to do it. Sign up today at patreon.com forward slash carry the fire pod. All right, let's get back to the show. I have some questions from, uh, some of the patrons, uh, Ryan says as a father and former evangelical also going through a deconstruction, I find myself sometimes longing for the sense of absolutism that comes, uh, that came with my evangelical faith. I wonder if Cindy or Dustin found anything particularly useful to bring comfort or reassurance during the untangling of past beliefs and practices. What do you think? I mean, well, I mean, I think a little bit of what I was saying before about, just just realizing like it's gonna take time to to reorient like it it is absolutely disorienting to go from having um this sense of certainty which i think is really at the core of what kind of fundamentalism is in any sense is we want security we want certainty and we think we get it by putting all the chips in this one thing and saying this has the authority therefore i know that that I'm safe. I know that everything is good. I know what to do. I know what not to do. I don't have to figure it out. And it feels very comforting. I think in a sense to have that, I think that's what he's saying is that absolute kind of certainty. It, it comes, I mean, we crave it, I think. And so when you leave it behind, it does feel scary. My encouragement really is to breathe, to wait, to, to reorient where to where you are now. And, I found for myself, I guess that there's just a, and I mean, that was me to a T for most of my life. Like that idea of chasing certainty was huge. When I left that behind, it it felt weird. It felt hard, but there's a different way of being in the world that you can find, which is not resting in something certain, but resting in that place of not knowing and in the place of wonder, in the place of curiosity. And that becomes, um, a beautiful thing that, that holds you in some sense, but it is not constraining you. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. So this is what I think about the whole certainty thing. Um, I feel like the security and comfort that you experience when you are in that world of, um, absolutes and certainty is false oh yeah 
um, because it's it's not uh, actually reflective of the real human experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I, and I try to think back and yeah, I try to think back to when I did believe, let's say when I did believe like, oh yeah, you know, Christians go to he- heaven and non-Christians go to hell. Like when I believed in that binary, I think I was always, I always had doubt in, in me. And that's why you hear people, stories of people who pray the prayer over and over again, mm-hmm. especially when they're young. It's because they didn't actually feel secure, even though they were given that very certain answer. If you pray the prayer, you will go to heaven. So why did people pray the prayer over and over again? You know, and I think it's because it's trying to confine something that's wild and 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 unruly into the force it into these boxes. Um, and so I think that actually, and that's why I think a lot of people who have moved into this I'm comfortable with uncertainty, they actually feel more secure and they feel more right, you know, because it's more authentic. Um, so I guess I would encourage people who who feel like they they want that certainty. Sometimes we crave something that's not good for us, right? And mm-hmm. that's like a that's a trauma response. You're oh, yeah. trying to go back to what's what's abusive, um, and that's normal. And I would never shame anybody for those feelings, but to understand that dynamic, you know, um, and to to really pursue your own healing. Um, in that path. And, and another thing I would say when it comes to parenting is that, um, kids do need some certainty. They need routine. They need, um, some sense of categorization, you know, like they, Mm. they need to know that, that, you know, that people they love are going to be there and that they are always loved, that there's nothing they could do that, you know, that could, that could lose that love. And so, uh, I'm, I feel like you don't. You also don't have to be afraid to be certain about caring for your children and parenting. Um, you know, it, you don't necessarily have to be dogmatic um, with your doctrines to provide a level of security for your kids, especially when they're, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good. I think the certainty isn't in something real, and I think everyone has that feeling that it's that that's the case. And I, I think that's why the reaction to someone questioning things is so strong because everyone feels the brittleness of their faith in that moment. And you're like, don't, don't, you're going to break all of this. Like we can feel it. It's not, it's not. And so that brittleness, I think is contrasted with whatever I was trying to say before this idea of something more expansive, something more flexible, something that bends Mm -hmm. with the contours of reality. That's right. And there's actually more security in that because you you just know there's that relaxation of like, yes, this feels true. You know, it's more true that we aren't sure. (laughs) It's more true that we change our minds, you know, that feels right. And, and there's, I feel like for me, there's, there's a great deal of peace, a lot more than I, felt when I had the absolute answers. Yeah. I think there is some, there's a transition period getting to that. If you have a, that's true. Yes. A a quick, uh, deconstruction or faith shift. Um, so yeah, Ryan, just, you got this man, wait it out, be present. I think address, you know, 
I, I, this is kind of a pitch for my own podcast, but I am running a series called Parenting After Religious Trauma. And, you know, the purpose of the podcast series really isn't to deconstruct theological doctrines. It's really to care for people who have suffered religious trauma, <clears throat> which is carried in their bodies. Um, and, and to understand, to like just be trauma-informed and understand the way trauma works in our nervous systems and our bodies and, and to, you know, to, to be invested in that recovery. Um, I feel like, yeah, I want people to know that they're, they deserve that kind of self-care for themselves. And especially if you're a parent, you definitely, you know, it's going to benefit your kids so much if you care for your own healing. So to Ryan, I would say, yeah, you, you know, you deserve to take care of yourself, to work on your healing, to find um, whatever helps regulate your nervous system as you work through trauma responses to your religious toxicity that you've, that you've experienced. Yeah. Therapy is also not bad, even though many if you came up if it's accessible to people yeah um, if you have access to that i don't i definitely feel like growing up like actual therapy was not you have like church therapy but not like <laughs> like just someone outside of that who's trained to help you with this stuff that can be really helpful too so i was curious in your own story so you were this is going back to uh before but you were so you became a missionary was there like one thing that was the, you know, straw that broke the camel's back for you that like really was like, this is the thing I can't get around and, and started your faith shift? No, there isn't. And I've, I've, I've told the story. I feel like it's kind of, uh, it's both gradual and there's moments that were a little bit more dramatic. And one of those moments would be, when my brother came out as trans mm -hmm. and this was back more than 10 years ago. So this was before we even had the language <laughs> of transgender. <laughs> um, but that's, that's who, who he is. Um, so that was a big jolt to my faith journey because I, it's interesting because when he came out, I, knew immediately that he was going to get pushback from the church. Well, I mean, I mean, church just the universal. Church at large, yeah, okay. yeah, right. Um, yeah, like I just knew it even before people were even talking about trans issues. This is even before, uh, you know, the issue of same-sex marriage was was a controversy. This was back when it was like, don't ask, don't tell. Like people just didn't talk, mm -hmm. just didn't, didn't even acknowledge gay people in the church, Right it's amazing how far we've come in these conversations because now it's unfathomable that, you know, everyone talks about it, whether you're on one side or the other. Right. Yeah. But yeah, back then it was like, we didn't talk about it. But even then when he came out, I knew that it was, that he was going to face opposition from the church, which tells me that, <laughs> which tells me that I knew there was bigotry in the church and I, really didn't want to confront it but because it's my brother and somebody in my family i it was then that i had to and and you know i along with homophobia and transphobia i tried to confront a whole bunch of other bigoted stances as well like racism and white supremacy and and uh, and sexism so that all of that kind of toppled my house of cards 
Yeah. Like a lot of times when I think back on the way that I would have to view the world before you have to like reject certain data around you, I think to, oh. to maintain the worldview, you know? So, um, That's right. I think in like your brother's case, like the choice is either do I reject the data that this is how my brother's telling me that they feel and, and this is their experience. And right. do I, do I, I mean, do you essentially gaslight them and be like, that's not actually your, your experience. That's, yeah. you know, it's just this or it's just that. Um, and so, so much of what I feel like I was taught was to not value my experience, to not value other people's experience. Um, and so you end up dealing with, you don't actually deal with reality, like with the experience uh, that's happening all around you and you, you just box everything off. So, um, well, and there's a lot of money and power that goes behind constructing entire organizations that provide you with the narrative so that you can reject actual data. <laughs> yeah. And you it's know, all cyclical, like the creation yeah. museum. <laughs> That's yes. a lot of money that was poured into that so that you can reject actual science. I don't know. <laughs> uh, that stuff's just funny too. Cause it's the early church was not on board with any of that. And then somehow it, it, a lot of it traces back to like one guy started predicted that the earth was 6,000 years old and started on Tuesday or whatever. Like literally it was, it was a Tuesday at like five o'clock. And that, that became like somehow just wove itself deeply into the, the fabric of, of the church. And, uh, yeah, it was not good. So you have a show about parenting in like a progressive faith setting, um, with your faith shift. Is there like a defining difference that you'd say changed about your approach to parenting? I think the main value that I have for my movement or whatever you want to call it is this idea of extending autonomy to children. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the way that I structured the ha first half of my book, Parenting Forward, is how do we respect a child's physical autonomy, emotional autonomy, spiritual autonomy. Um, yeah, so just this idea that children are human beings, that they are worthy of dignity and respect, and they have the human right to make decisions that impact their own lives, mm -hmm. um, which is something that was so radically different from the way I was raised. <laughs> and I would say for, for most people in our generation, because I think this recognition of a child's right is still such a new thing historically. Um, so I think it's a new way of thinking for many of us, not necessarily just conservative religions, but mm -hmm. certainly that too. <laughs> yeah. I would say that that's definitely not the paradigm in the West in general, or probably I'm really probably anywhere like as a, it's definitely coming into being more, but, um, I feel like still fairly, fairly new in a lot of ways or in most circles. Yeah, um, I'm here. There's some stories of like indigenous cultures who really honor a child's mm. autonomy. So that's that's been encouraging, and you know, just shows again how much we can learn from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I had another patron question. Courtney says, "I was raised Mormon with very strict parents. 
I've been able to step back and see the good that growing up the church did for me and also how some of the ideas and practices were actually quite damaging to me and have continued mm -hmm. to affect me as an adult. I have two children of my own and I feel like I do a fair job of teaching them right and wrong, but I'm always second guessing myself on if they should have some sort of core belief in a higher power. I find myself struggling with an internal battle between wanting to believe and my own skepticism. In your experience, do you find that having a belief in God makes a major difference in teaching children love, compassion, and understanding? My oldest asked me if God is real, and I told him that some people use the idea of God as a tool to guide them through life, but that no one truly knows. I told him as long as he is patient, loving, and kind to others, he needn't worry about God, heaven, hell, etc. What do you What do you say to that? I think that's a fantastic answer. Um, I think it it respects the child's question um, and tries to give a factual answer that some people think this, some people, I think it's always good to offer alternative views instead of saying this is the way and this is the only way. Um, her answer also uh, really focuses on certain values. Um, and I think that this is the one thing that a lot of people who are deconstructing, this deconstructing, they feel like they don't know what to teach their kids anymore because they've thrown out so much of their beliefs. And, and like we were saying before, deconstruction is also very creative. You know, the reason you deconstruct certain things is because you value other things. And so, um, parents do have values to offer to their kids. And so like loving, patient, kind, those are the values that's important to Courtney. And so for her to offer that to her kids, I think is a beautiful thing. And it's a way to, yeah, just have some sort of, you know, moral ground um, that centers a child's formation um, I think the important thing that offers a child autonomy is always giving them room to dissent against your values and to come up with their own and to change their minds and to decide for themselves as they grow. Um, so I think as long as we're offering the child that kind of freedom and respect, um, that we don't have to be afraid to share our values. And if you believe in God, um, to share that belief as well. Like, I don't consider that proselytizing because you're not, first of all, you're not threatening a child with hell. And second of all, you are always saying, this is what I believe. There are other people who believe differently and you can decide what you, you believe. I mean, it just in <clears throat> more than just in this case, but being uh, really honest with your kids of the things that you don't know is I think really helpful. I think a lot of times it's tempting as parents to, to try to act like you have all the answers, you know, and that was kind of the way I think previous generations just did things. But, you know, I know with my kids, like when I am open about those things, when I ask them questions about what they think, like their answers are always fascinating and full of insights. And when I say, here's what I think. And I don't, I don't know. Here's what some other people think. It sets that value of, of humility and curiosity for them to be able to explore these ideas. Um, but I do like that, like that. And if you believe something saying, I, this is what I think, this is who I think God is. What do you think about that? And I think even with the question of hell or something, I mean, if you, if you ask a kid, like, God is love. I, I believe God's love. And then 
do you believe a God that's love would send people to hell for not understanding something about him? Like, I mean, it, it's the simplicity of doing that. Like a child is never going to make that, <laughs> that leap to be like, Oh yeah, God would totally do that. Like that's a whole nother, like that's come about for very different reasons. I think that adults mm-hmm. believe that and tell kids that, but if you start from this idea of, and, and maybe we're in a, a privileged space to do that. But if you start from that, either that God, if God is anything, God is love that, mm-hmm. that really sets up, um, a different way of, of thinking about something. So if you can tease that out of the questions, I think you don't have to be worried about whatever your kid's going to think about that. Like having these conversations is, is super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, I just think that I do feel like a lot of people use love as kind of their guiding, you know, value, um, which of course you can't really argue against love. The, the, the only, the, my problem with it is, first of all, it's very vague. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does love actually mean? And secondly, it's just been used by so many people to gaslight, specifically by like, you know, conservative <laughs> people <laughs> who are like, oh, yeah, we love you, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Like, what kind of love is that? That's not actual love. And so mm-hmm. I think that term has, has just been so convoluted that I, I think it's still good, obviously. Um, I do believe that love love wins and love is love. But um, I do think, yeah, be, being a little bit more specific and nuanced, even with your young children, um, what do you mean by love? You mm-hmm. know, do you mean you care for somebody who doesn't have power? Um, you listen to someone's stories. Um, you you are generous with your money and your time, you know, just, I think just becoming a little bit more specific and what you mean by, by that, uh, will go a long ways in terms of parenting your child in this value. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think that that's another place that you can have, instead of just saying, this is what love is like, talk to them about like, what is, what actually feels loving to you? Like, what does this look like? What, how does this look like with your friends? How does it look like with you and me? How does it look like at school? Like with your teachers, like that. How does it make your body feel? You know, Mm -hmm. how does your body feel when, when you feel safe? You know, do you feel like you can breathe easier? Do you feel like you are light? And, um, so I think, yeah, one thing I'm learning from my friend Brian is kind of introducing body sensation vocabulary into our children's experience. I think it's really helpful. I think to Courtney for the question of this is my answer. I'm curious what you say, Cindy, but I don't think, well, I know that there are people who raise their kids to be loving, to be uh, caring for justice and, wholeness and all of these things who don't believe in God. And I think that they do a great job of that. So I don't, I don't think you need to be worried about that, but I do think it's not wrong or right to, to be doing that as if you believe that yourself. Right. I agree. Yeah. I think we can't generalize people. I think there are crappy people who believe in God and there are, excellent people who don't believe in God. (laughs) Um, To me, it's just, it's more about 
how you live your, how you actually live your life, you know, you know, actions speak louder than words and all that. Right. Um, so yeah, you can believe whatever you want. I want to see how the fruit of your life, how are you treating your neighbors? And, um, that to me is more impactful. Yeah. I think that I feel like that's one of those other kind of pieces of data that gets overwritten in certain subcultures where you're like, look, this, this uh, guy over here, he is atheist and he is married and he's gay and they're raising these kids and you're like, no, but that's, but they're not doing it the way that we want to do it. But you're like, but they're parenting better than, than, than you are like that. It's like the data is there that like you can see like this child feels loved and taken care of and supported. Um, but you've got it. You have to close that data off for your, you know, worldview to keep from collapsing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I missed out on so many rich relationships and stories because I was trapped in that narrative that I wasn't allowed, had to ignore the data. Um, and you know, you say data, but really there are opportunities for beautiful flourishing relationships. And I feel like I missed out on a lot, a lot mm -hmm. of that growing up. So I would hate for my kids to miss out on that as well. I got one more patron question. Heather's asking, uh, she said, I would love to hear how Cindy advises navigating the search for a church after deconstructing from reformed theology. Uh, I worry about traditional church teaching my kids things that I don't agree with and might have to unlearn, but I also want a community to wrestle with these things. I benefit greatly from podcasts, but my 13 year old, for example, can't hang with a lot of the stuff I'm listening to and could use a youth group that's helping break it down for them. Uh, so, I mean, similar to what we we're talking about before, but she's, she's asking more like, is there a resource for finding faith communities that can do this stuff together, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, there's just logistically, there's an organization called church clarity. Do you know, mm -hmm. have you heard of it? Mm -hmm. It's just a, a way to kind of, uh, it, it, it demands that churches reveal their policies on, um, LGBTQ people serving in leadership. So that's a good tool that you can use to find churches that are at least gay affirming. Um, and I, I have a blog post that's really old now, but something called spiritual child protection policies. And um, I would apply those policies to a church community. And it's basically things like, are the children allowed to show their emotions? Are they allowed to dissent? Are they exposed to other ideas outside of, you know, that specific narrative of that faith community? So I would just be, be aware of that. And of course, I would look into actual child protection policies where, you know, the physical safety of the children are honored. So I think that's one of the advantages that we have as people who have deconstructed is we kind of know all the red flags, right, in a toxic faith community. So use that power to your advantage as you find a new faith community you know, know, know what's up, right? And don't be afraid to leave if it's toxic for you and your child and your family. And um, I know it's not easy. I know there's so many people who struggle with finding a new faith community. I would also just encourage that people think outside the box of a Sunday morning worship as something that's spiritually nourishing for your family 
Um, there are other activities and organizations that you can evolve with. You can create your own rituals. Um, there are resources out there. You know, people are creating resources that serve that kind of need. So like I'm thinking of, you know, YouTube sermons or, or even interesting podcasts and, um, you know, gather a small group and listen to a podcast and, and discuss it and gather, you know, a young people's group. I know it takes work and leadership for those things to happen, but yeah, I think we are at this kind of exciting time where we get to kind of create our own communities and new rituals. And um, I would also say, don't be afraid to try, try those ideas if, if the traditional faith spaces are just not working out for your family. Yeah. I think a big struggle, at least that I've been running into and in looking for spots is that the, the world that I came out of does like um, great kids and youth programming like it's really fun for the kids and a lot of the more progressive places just haven't done that well or i don't i don't know why what the reason is but uh, you know in mainline stuff or there's just it's hard to find something that feels fun and lively and and but then has more progressive values so i don't know why that is someone's gotta yeah that is that is the struggle but I wonder if there's also there's other children's organizations, right? Or are the only people doing good children's programming like conservative Christians? No, I, I definitely hear hear that point. I think it's more it's not even just the yeah, I guess you could you could look at like um I don't know, Girl Scouts or something. It's something like that as a somewhere where there is that community that's forming over time um, as being um, some sort of alternative to that situation. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good way to to think about uh, a different direction, maybe to take it. I was curious if you have any consistent practices or habits that are helpful for you. Um, you mean like rituals? Rituals, spiritual practices. Um, yeah, pretty, I mean, yeah, pr- pretty um, broad, I, I have, well, <laughs> just recently, and this is going to be part of my podcast series too, is the, the boundaries practice that, uh, that my friend, therapist friend Brian taught me, which is where you physically push your arms out in front of you. Um, and then you swing it back and forth and you say, these are my boundaries. And that's a really good practice for when you are triggered (laughs) from any sort of trauma, because you are kind of claiming your space for yourself. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I do breathing exercises with my calm app. (laughs) So that's, that's something. So just little things like that. I have those practices, but in terms of like larger rituals not really we we have our family traditions you know we have our the way we celebrate our holidays and and our weekly routines um which is ritualistic but it's not necessarily religious Mm -hmm. Uh, and what are some of the ways that you regularly seek out or encounter beauty in your life that's a great question um i am a people person Mm -hmm. so it's really doesn't take much for me to find beauty because yeah, I can always connect with people. I I'm a big social media person. (laughs) Um, so 
I, all I have to do is get on social media. And I know people see a lot of ugliness and toxicity in social media, and I get that. But the flip side is always there's some really beautiful things on there. And um, yeah, when I, any kind of art, I, books and TV shows and movies, um, I'm very easily... I very easily fall in love <laughs> with characters and stories. And, and so that's, I'm a humanities person. So mm. that's where I find, find beauty. And then of course, getting out into nature, which is harder for me because I live in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm not far from the beach and the mountains. So, yeah, but you know, we're in the midst of a coronavirus <laughs> yeah. situation here. We're very close to ground zero. Um, so lately we've tried to avoid going to public spaces yeah, um, which I, I feel like I am kind of feeling it a little bit stir crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, hopefully this is a short lived season. Yeah. Maybe just let people know where they can find what's going on with you, what you have coming up. You've got your podcast. Um, that's right. Um, and then I have, I have my book, Parenting Forward. I have my podcast, Parenting Forward. And I'm also hosting a conference in April featuring people like Barbara Brown Taylor and Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Um, oh, she's just on here. Oh, really? Yeah. Isn't she awesome? She's the best, yeah. She's awesome, yeah. We found so she's we like be... the same like small punk band when we were kids, which is funny. No way. Yeah. <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah, so she just knows everything. Casper, who is the... Um, host of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We have Reverend um, Dr. Jackie Lewis, who is the pastor at Middle Church in New York. Um, and they're going to all be talking about parenting and healthy spirituality. So it's going to be really a special time. So you can find all that information at parentingforwardconference.com. Okay. Where is that going to be? Or is it an online conference? It's online. Yes. It's an online. So wherever you have access to the internet, uh, you can, you can shoot. And then, and then you can also have access to the recordings for a year after the conference is over. Awesome. Well, thank you, Cindy, so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to chat with you. Yeah. Cheers. If you have a moment today, it would help a ton if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Uh, Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CarryTheFirePod. I want to thank my producer, Andy Lara, and all of our executive producers, Adam Collins, Amy Armstrong, Andrew Diaz, Brianna Webb, Brian Weisbecker, Cameron Lane, Colin Hawthorne, Denise Sugita, David Cobb, Drew Perra, Eric Gonzalez, Gabe Muniz, Gary Jilke, Hamza Babahani, Jeremy Robinson, Jess Card, John Buchan, John Diego, John Engel, Jonathan Clark, Jordan Goodman, Jordan Everly, Joshua Malara, Kyle Starr, Luca Leva, Luis Rivera, Luis Enriquez, Marco Padilla, Mark Francis, Mark Weiss, Matt Fuchs, Matthew Alcon, Michael Maitland, Miguel Pinabroa, Nathaniel Bailey, Ron Alberca, Ryan Cornelius, Samantha Simmons, Shaden Weidmeyer, Stephen Saucier, Susanna Coleman, Ted Reiser, Tiffany Payne, Timothy Dewine, and William Galdemez. Thank you all so much for carrying the fire with me, and I'll see you next time.